For our text this morning, we'll be continuing on in our journey through the epistle of First Peter. We find ourselves this morning in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. I've entitled our service this morning, A Call to Godly Living. A Call to Godly Living. Apostle Peter has touched on many points so far in this epistle. He has looked at the call to suffering, the, the expectation for suffering for the church, the gospel. He has looked at our position in Christ. And now he's transitioning to what, how this then looks. What does it look like if we, for us as believers? So let's read our text in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The last two sermons that we were in this text that we completed, we've seen the measure of privilege that God has bestowed upon us as His children. These immense privileges were aptly summed up by the Apostle Peter in the two verses preceding the text that we just read in verse 9, where he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. You were once a people. Sorry, you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are reminded of the Apostle Peter's words in verse 9 that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. A people for his own possession, he says, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. The purpose of our privileged position we saw is that we may proclaim the excellencies of God. We have received our citizenship into the kingdom for this purpose, for the purpose of proclaiming God's praises. Because God has redeemed us, we proclaim His excellencies. Peter is encouraging believers to make known the good news of Jesus Christ and all that God has accomplished in our salvation. In this we see an evangelistic zeal, a responsibility to missions, to tell the pagan world around us of the saving power of Jesus Christ. Peter is reminding his readers of what we have come to know as the Great Commission, where Jesus says in Matthew 28, and Jesus came to that and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, 
I am with you always to the end of the age. The believer has a responsibility to share the good news of the gospel with the unbelieving world around us. To teach all that Christ has commanded us. And like Peter states, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. But we do this from a position of being sojourners and exiles. Peter's reminding his readers of his earlier words in chapter 1, verse 1, where he says that we are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. The word translated in verse 11 as sojourners in our text is also translated as aliens in other translations and literally means alongside the house. And MacArthur elaborates on this term in his commentary that the word came to denote any person who lives in a country not his own and therefore a foreigner. The term fits Christians who do not belong to this world system but live alongside those who do. Peter also uses the term translated as exiles in our text, or strangers in other translations, which is a synonym for sojourners or aliens. It refers to a visitor who travels through a country and perhaps makes a brief stay there. The writer of Hebrews reminded believers in chapter 13, verse 14, that we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And he's referencing an earlier passage in chapter 11 of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, if you have your Bible with you, you can turn there. And we'll look starting in verse 13 of chapter 11. It says, These all died in the faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. How then should we live in this world as sojourners and exiles? If we have no lasting city and we're always looking forward to a city to come, how should we then live? Up to this point in his letter, Peter has reminded the believers of their privileged status that we have in Christ in spite of our sufferings, in spite of our trials, in spite of our persecutions. And now, starting in verse 11 of our text, he begins to show how our mission flows out of our new identity as the beloved of God, those upon whom God has bestowed His marvelous grace. Having shown us who we are, he now motivates us to live in a manner worthy of this position. Commentator Robert Layton wrote, When a Christian walks irreprovably, his enemies have nowhere to fasten their teeth on him. 
but are forced to gnaw their own malignant tongues. As it secures the godly, thus to stop the lying mouths of foolish men, so it is painful to them to be thus stopped. As muzzling is to beasts, and it punishes their malice, and this, a wise Christian's way, instead of impatiently fretting at the mistakes or willful misconsensures of men, to keep still on his calm temper of mind and upright course of life and silent innocence. This, as a rock, breaks the waves into foam that roar upon it. When a Christian behaves in such a manner, it is as the rocks that break the waves of the world as they come after the church, after the believer. MacArthur also noted in his commentary that a Scottish preacher, Alexander McLaren, commented, the world takes its notions of God, most of all, from the people who say that they belong to God's family. They read us a great deal more than they read the Bible. The world around us the unbelievers, the pagans, and even many of those who profess to know Christ but do not, they will see us and they will read our lives and our actions and our responses a lot more than they often will read their own Bibles, their own Scriptures, their own texts of their own religion. This is something that we must always be cognizant of. We must have in the forefront of our mind that the world is watching us. And it is a difficult task especially during trying times too, where we must plead for sanctification in those areas that we might be a witness and a light. In the Sermon of the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus tells all who would follow Him, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Give glory to our Father who is in heaven because of the works that we do through the power of the Holy Spirit. All glory goes to God for all good things. And this is the essence of what Peter is exhorting his readers to do in our passage this morning. Live godly lives, which is the single most effective tool we as Christians have for making the gospel we proclaim attractive and believable. If we say we are a new creation, we ought to live as though we are a new creation. If we say we've been changed, we ought to live differently than the world. We are transformed by His grace and our lives must reflect that. Daniel Doriani writes, Because we belong to Jesus, because He is our judge and king, our redeemer and lawgiver, we have become aliens and strangers or sojourners and exiles in the world. We belong to a ruler who transcends this world's rulers and we follow Him. So we inevitably experience a partial alienation from this world. 
by following a ruler who transcends the rulers of this world, the kingdoms of this world, and belonging to this kingdom, we will experience this alienation. We will feel as though often we do not belong. Because Jesus is Lord, all earthly lords take second place. Because Jesus is our King, all earthly kings bow to Him. Considering this, we must live godly lives among the Gentiles. We must conduct ourselves in a manner fitting our testimony. And that's what Peter is addressing here. In our text, we read verse 11 and 12, but if we look at the text further and as we move in our sermon series in the months and stuff to come, we will see this. But Peter transitions to in verse 13, and the heading, if you have the ESV translation, will probably read, Submission to Authority. So Peter's telling us how to live, how to live godly lives, but he's giving us practical example as well. In fact, let's read, starting verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it When you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of the Lord. Though we may often suffer and face trials and persecutions in this world, because of the pagan systems, because of the pagan levels of authority that rule it, we are to live godly lives. We are called to live godly lives. As Peter says in chapter 2, verse 15, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now the group to whom Peter is writing, they needed to hear this because they were in a stressful situation. Chapter 1, verse 1 tells us they were scattered. They were being persecuted. Chapter 4, verse 12, Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. The church wasn't to be surprised by the trials and persecutions. Verse 13 of chapter 4 says they were sharing the sufferings of Christ. Verse 19 says they were suffering according to the will of God. They were suffering persecution. 
Not only were they scattered, but they were under severe persecution. They needed motivation to carry on living the Christian life amid the difficult times of trials and the difficult experience of persecutions and suffering that they were facing. They needed to be encouraged. They needed to be urged on. They needed motivation. And in our text this morning, there's a bit of a longer introduction there. But in our text this morning, we're looking at two keys to achieve godly living. Two keys to achieve godly living. We can achieve godly living through one, number one, internal godly discipline. As shown on your outline, internal godly discipline is the first key to achieve godly living. And the second point, external godly demeanor. So looking at our first point, internal godly discipline. The Apostle Peter writes in verse 11 of chapter 2, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Peter uses the present tense verb to urge his readers. This is to beseech or to encourage them to godly living. Likewise, in verse 11 and verse 12, the verbs to abstain and to keep are also in a present tense. So why is this important? It indicates the ongoing necessity of this exhortation. It is not a one and done deal. It is an ongoing life to abstain, to keep our conduct honorable, to do these things. It's it's an ongoing urging and encouragement that Peter is giving The church here, this is not a one-time command that Peter is giving, but rather an ongoing expectation for the one born of God. A continued effort on the part of the believer in our holy manner of living. To live upright lives, to live godly lives. First then, Peter urges us as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against the soul. To abstain indicates a total abstinence or to refrain from something. And Peter's command here to abstain also signifies that Christians, by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, have the ability to restrain the lusts and the desires of the flesh. Because of the Spirit that dwells in us, we have the ability to refrain, to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Paul gives us some good insight into this in his letter to the Romans. Turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 12, the Apostle Paul writes, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. 
For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Let's actually flip a few pages to chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. We see the bonds of sin and death have been released on the new man. We are a new man, a new creation. And we now live in the new life, by the power of the Holy Spirit within us. The Apostle Paul also addresses this in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The flesh and the spirit are contrary to each other. And we abstain from the passions of the flesh by walking in the spirit. Because the spirit of God now dwells in us, we have a new disposition with holy longings, with holy desires. Though our new man dwells within the confines of our remaining sinful flesh, And this flesh wages war against our redeemed souls. But we are no longer slaves of unrighteousness, but rather we are slaves of righteousness. And these two are at extreme odds with each other. Unrighteousness, the flesh, righteousness, our redeemed souls. There's a constant battle. They are at extreme odds with each other. And this does create a battle that rages day and night. The Apostle Paul articulates these passions of the flesh. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, a familiar passage to many of you. The Apostle Paul writes regarding the passions of the flesh. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions and divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, 
And things like these, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of the God, uh, kingdom of God. So we see the passions of the flesh, the works of the flesh, identify those who are of the world, not those who are of the kingdom of God. They sit in stark contrast with what Paul further defines as the fruit of the Spirit. The works of the flesh are nothing like the works of the Spirit. And as we saw Paul um, write in, to his letter in, to Romans, or the church in Rome, sorry, we are of the Spirit. We are no longer of the flesh. We have the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in each one of us as children of God and gives life to our mortal bodies. So we are no longer to pursue the desires and passions of this world, but rather to the contrary, the things of the Spirit, which Paul goes on in the same text in Galatians 5 verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such things there is no law. And we see in verse 24, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified. We were crucified with Christ. We died with Him. We were buried with Him. And then we were raised into newness of life with Him. The power, flesh no longer has dominion over us because of this. We have been freed from being enslaved to unrighteousness. We are no longer children of the devil. We are children of God. Through Christ Jesus, we've been adopted into the family of God. We are to put off the things of the flesh. We are to abstain, as Peter says, from the passions of the flesh. The culture around us is corrupt. The culture around us is wicked. And though we are never told to blame the culture for our failings, even though Around us, the world is still walking in the footsteps of their father, the devil. We are aliens. Though we are in the world, we are not of the world. In fact, God teaches us that the evil desires within us, within our flesh, sorry, God's word teaches us that the evil desires are within us. They are in our flesh. The battle is between our soul and our flesh, the, the, the spirit and the flesh. And in fact, let's turn to James, the book of James, chapter 1. James teaches us here in chapter 1, verse 15. Sorry, start in verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. 
Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The sin we rage, we, that the battle rages against is within us. James further writes a few chapters later in chapter 4, starting verse 1. What causes quarrel, quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You, adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God. The battle rages within our own flesh. The battle rages between our flesh and our spirit. And we saw Paul's own battle with that this morning as Pastor Mike read Romans chapter 7. It is a very real battle. And the Apostle Peter urges us to abstain from the passions of the flesh because they wage war against our soul. Now, to wage war is a very strong term. And it generally means to carry out a long-term military campaign. It implies a relentless, malicious aggression. And I like how one commentator put it. Since it takes place in our soul, in our flesh, it is kind of like a civil war. It is a war to be waged within ourselves, between our soul and our flesh. And Peter gives us the instruction here how to win this war. We must remember that our flesh has already been crucified. Our flesh has been put to death in that sense. It has lost its dominion over us. We aren't battling. We're not abstaining from the flesh from a position of defeat. It is a war that rages because Christ has conquered supreme. He is the victor. And if we walk in the Spirit, the Apostle Paul we saw, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. This is something that, as we noted earlier, the Apostle Peter, by giving us this instruction, is implying that this is something that we as a believer, by the power of the Holy Spirit, are able to do. To walk in this life. To put off the things of the flesh. We can now do it because of who we are in Christ. Because of that privileged position that we've looked at. We're able to do this. But prior to our salvation, prior to our own salvation, we too lived under the power and the rule of the Holy, or of the world of our fleshly desires, of the passions of the flesh. In Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes, in chapter, uh, starting in verse 1, You were dead 
in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at war in that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were under the rule of the flesh. We carried out the desires and the passions of the flesh. But now we are regenerated. We are new creations. And because of that, we are to abstain from the passions of the flesh. In fact, the Apostle John tells us in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, Now as believers, as children of God, as new creation, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. One commentator noted, Our battle is not against the unbelieving people of the world. They are our mission field. It is against our own natural sinful desires. And no amount of insulation from the world out there will leave behind our desires in here. No amount of insulation from the world out there will leave behind our desires in here. Our fight is against sin and temptation, worldliness and the devil. And that is a fight that takes place within us more so than around us. This is our need for godly, inner godly discipline. The soul is constantly under attack. And we must put to death that which seeks to destroy it. We must put, we must put to death those things which seek to destroy our soul, namely our flesh. And since Peter says the Christian life is like a war, we need to be prepared for battle, ever ready to destroy anything within ourselves that seeks to hinder our walk with the Lord and may bring shame to His holy name. Be ready to destroy those things which hinder our walk, to remove them from our lives, to be disciplined in knowing the areas which we tend to fall. The battle begins in the flesh. It begins with our own inner desires, as Apostle James wrote. Be wise in those things. In turn, we must then conduct ourselves in such a way that brings glory to God's name. Remove the things that will cause us to bring shame to God's name 
and in turn conduct ourselves in such a way that bring glory to God's name. And this then leads us to our second point, and the last point in our outline. Our external godly demeanor in verse 12. We have seen the negative aspect of Peter's urging, or what not to do, abstain from the passions of the flesh. And now we look at the positive aspect, the positive instruction where Peter tells us what to do. What to do. Verse 12 reads, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter urges again. He urges us to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Recognizing that Christians still live among the Gentiles, the instruction is then how to live in order to reflect the new character that we as Christians claim to have. Our demeanor bears witness to our profession of Christ in us. We make the claim that Christ dwells in us, that we have the Holy Spirit within us. Then our action, our demeanor, ought to reflect that. It bears witness to our profession of Christ in us, to the pagan world around us. In order to give credibility to our evangelism, our outward behavior must give credibility to our inner transformation. In order to give credibility to our evangelism, our outward behavior must give credibility to our inner transformation. Our conduct is to be honorable, which is translated from a word meaning beautiful of outward form. Beautiful of outward form. That's what our conduct is to be. It implies an attractive, visible goodness. Something that people see as being good. Whereas some translations also have it as excellent. The Christian should be guilty of living moral lives, more moral lives than the pagan world in which we find ourselves. We find ourselves in a world filled with greed, corruption. We ought to live in such a way that we are guilty of being more moral than they are. We see too often how that seems to not matter to people. A sense of what we know as antinomianism, we can do whatever we want. But that is not the call of Scripture. Because we are redeemed, we ought to live in a way in which we conduct ourselves in an honorable manner to the watching world. In fact, Peter says, live this way so that when they speak against you as evildoers, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The purpose of godly living is that the Gentiles around you might observe your good deeds, a lifestyle in sync with your profession of faith, and glorify God. 
You see, how we live in this world brings glory to God's name. It's not about ourselves. It's not about doing things to exalt ourselves in this world. In fact, we may lose very well everything in this world because of this living. But it is to bring glory to God's name. It is to point beyond us to our eternal kingdom, to our eternal state, to the God who redeemed us and called us from darkness into his marvelous light. Peter goes on in verse 12. Excuse me. He goes on and states, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, when they speak against you as evildoers, not if they speak against you, Peter recognizes that this will happen. It is bound to happen. It is not a maybe. It is only a matter of when. In fact, it may be the very abstaining from the fleshly passions that causes unbelievers to speak against us. It may be the very abstaining from these things that rage, wage war within us that may cause them to turn against us. And Peter addresses that in chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4. Starting in verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. All of these things we see match up with what the Apostle Paul listed as works of the flesh. These are the very things Peter earlier in the same letter tells us to abstain from, to keep away from. Verse 4 of chapter 4, he says, With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. The world is surprised when we do not partake in these lusts of the flesh, and these desires of the flesh. When we live differently than them, they are surprised. And then they malign you. Godly living is why they will turn against you. If you live in sin, you're like them. If you live in sin, the, you're not shedding a light on their life. It is because we are changed, because we now conduct ourselves in a manner that's not in accordance with the systems of this world, but rather with the new kingdom that we are citizens of, the kingdom yet to come. We are aliens. We are strangers. And they do not understand that. And they will malign you. And they speak evil against you. Peter Davids notes in his commentary, they accused them of a number of crimes. Speaking of the church, the, the, the world, the pagans against the church, the Christians, they accused them of a number of crimes such as practicing murder, incest, cannibalism in their secret church meetings. These accusations were 
derived from their pagan interpretation of such phrases that the church would use, like love feasts, brother and sister. Christians viewed each other as brother and sister. They were accused of being guilty of incest. Partaking in the Lord's Supper, the blood and the flesh, was interpreted as cannibalism. In other history, Tacitus and Suetonius were leading Roman historians who wrote around A.D. 100. Tacitus said that Christians were loathed for their vices. They were loathed for their vices. This is shortly after the establishment of the church. And already, this is what the historians were writing, Nero blamed Christians for the great fire of Rome and because they were hated for their abominations and adhered to a pernicious superstition. A pernicious superstition is what their faith was referred to. After the fire, Christians were arrested and slain, not so much on the count of arson as for the hatred of human race. Suetonius stated that Nero punished Christians as a sect professing a new and impious superstition. Nero punished the Christians as a sect professing a new and pious superstition. That is what this faith was referred to by Nero, a superstition. What were their crimes? Again, some accused them of cannibalism. In a pernicious and possibly willful misconstrual of the Lord's Supper, is how this historian refers to it. A pernicious and possibly willful misconstrual of the Lord's Supper. They hated them that it is possible that they were making up these things and intentionally misinterpreting these things specifically for the fact that they could speak evil of them. The charge of hatred of the human race grew from their refusal to join in worshiping the emperor or local patron deities. They were accused of hating the human race because they did not worship the emperor or their local deities. They would simply say that they refused to compromise their faith. But if refusal to worship false gods is hatred of humanity, then false charges are inevitable. If refusal to worship false gods is hatred of humanity, then these false charges are inevitable. End quote. The Christian's refusal to compromise on our faith and practice has always drawn criticism and slander from the sinful world in which we find ourselves. And I dare say we see the evidence ever so strongly in our world today with everything that is happening. A refusal to bow to Caesar has the world and many professing Christians, and I use that term professing carefully, it has many of them turning against the church and against those who would unashamedly stand and worship Christ as king. 
as our Savior and as Lord of His church. But in spite of this knowledge that pagans will always twist, contort, and misrepresent what Christians say and do, the believer, this is to us, no matter what they say in the world out there, as believers we must strive to live in such a manner as to make the accusations of the world baseless. If they accuse us of all kinds of wrongdoing, if they accuse us of evil, we must ensure that our lives reflect a lifestyle that makes those accusations baseless. And that anyone who is being honest with that will be able to look at it and say, no, that is not true. Peter said in chapter 2, verse 15, as we read earlier, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. By doing good, our good deeds, our good actions should put to silence the ignorance of those false accusations. They will come. They come. We see them. Definitely there's areas in the world and even in our nation where people face those things a lot more than we do. But they will come. We are to live in such a way that our good deeds, the good that we do, should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. We have all heard the saying before, actions speak louder than words. A familiar statement, actions speak louder than words. This is in essence what Peter is saying. Our profession of faith will mean nothing if it is not followed by a beautiful life. An honorable life. Our profession of faith are empty words if it isn't followed by a life that reflects this transformation that we profess. Our words are given validity by our godly living. According to Peter, a beautiful life is a result of abstaining from the passions of the flesh. Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul and keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. Keeping our conduct honorable is the result of abstaining from the passions of the flesh. In fact, Peter says that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles to the, in the world out there, the pagan world, its pagan systems, so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So we ask, what is the day of visitation? Definitely one of the harder parts for me in this passage to work through. And I appreciate the time that Pastor Mike spent also chatting through this with me a little bit. And the work of many wise men before that have written down their studies. But we have to ask, what is the day of visitation? This is a common phrase in the Old Testament. And the obvious indication here is a visitation from God. 
In the Old Testament, God visited man in a number of different ways, but basically for two reasons. For blessing or for judgment. In Isaiah chapter 10, verse 3, we read, What will you do on the day of punishment? Now note the phrase punishment there. We'll address that in a minute here. What will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? Now here in the ESV, the translation that I just read, we have the word translated as punishment. The King James renders this same word as visitation. So in the King James, we read the day of visitation. Now the Septuagint, which is the early Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, uses the exact same word in Isaiah 10.3 as Peter uses in chapter 2, verse 12. So what we see the prophet Isaiah saying here, he is using this term for the purpose of judgment. We see the term, the day of visitation, being used in reference to judgment. We're only going to look at very few examples here for the sake of time. But similarly, the prophet Jeremiah prophesied God's visitation. But Jeremiah used this phrase for deliverance. And speaking of deliverance, in Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So we've seen one example from the Old Testament where it refers to judgment. One where it uh, refers to deliverance for redemption. In the New Testament, the usual usage of the term visitation indicates blessing and redemption. In Zechariah's prophecy in Luke chapter 1 verse 68 to 69, Luke chapter 1 68 to 69, we read, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. So we see clearly the term there referring to our redemption. Further, Luke writes in chapter 19, Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 41. Luke writes, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Here Luke is referring to it as well as re- in a sense of redemption. But because the Jews reject- rejected Christ's visitation of salvation, 
it turned into a visitation of judgment. Because they rejected Christ's visitation of salvation, it turned into a visitation of judgment. The Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14 through 16, the Apostle Paul writes, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that which they might be saved, that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. So again, the Jews rejected Christ's visitation of salvation and it turned into a visitation of judgment for rejecting Christ as their Messiah. Now, because of the New Testament's normal usage of the term visitation, God's redemption is most likely in view in our text here. When Peter says that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation, God's redemption is most likely in view in our text here. MacArthur comments that the apostle used the expression to show that because of observation, observation of Christian virtue and good works in the lives of believers. So because people have seen the good works in the lives of the believers, some would be privileged to glorify God when he also visited them with salvation. Now, to be fair, there were some differing views, none really contradictory views, but to the extent of which what this visitation is talking about. Is it speaking of, as MacArthur noted here, specifically their day of visitation and redemption? I do believe it does cover that, because as we've seen, that phrase does get used that way in notes to God visiting us with salvation. And when unbelievers are visited on their day of salvation, they glorify God because of what they've seen in the professing church, because of the good deeds that people have done through the work and the power of the Holy Spirit and in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But either way, in redemption or in judgment, all people will have to confess God's powerful display in His people. If we live godly lives in a world that is against it, if we live our lives in such a way that God's power and the power of the Holy Spirit are evident in our actions, in our deeds, and how we live, then in salvation or in judgment, God's name will be glorified. If He visits in redemption or if He visits in judgment, All people will have to confess God's powerful display in His people. That is, they will give glory to God on that day, even if they have not previously acknowledged God as their Savior, Christ as their Savior. They will glorify God on that day. To give glory to God is an exhortation to acknowledge God's justice and His righteousness. So either in judgment or in redemption, God's name will be glorified.
on that day. And all men will stand before God one day and do just that. Every person who exists today, who will exist in the future, or who has existed in the past, every human being, be it the slave or the master, the ruling authorities and governments, the kings, the queens, or the lowly and the poor, will all one day stand before our holy God one day and do just that. They will glorify God, either in facing judgment or by God's grace in their redemption. So in conclusion, because of who we are and our redemption through Jesus Christ, we are to proclaim the excellencies of God. We are to share the good news of the gospel to a dying world around us. And then we are to live upright, godly lives that reflect the new creation that we claim to be as God's children, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, by abstaining from the passions of the flesh, and then conducting ourselves in an honorable manner. And in doing this, we ultimately bring glory to God's name. We ultimately bring glory to our Father and to the One who saved us. So let us, let us, Grace Bible Fellowship, let us now proclaim the excellencies of God with both, with both our lips and our lives. Let us proclaim these excellencies in such a manner that we bring glory to God's name. And then let us conduct ourselves in such a manner within our own community, within this community of Lacrete, within our province, our nation, and wherever we may find ourselves. Let us live our lives in an honorable manner to bring glory to God's name so that again we proclaim His excellencies with our lips and our lives for the glory of God in both His salvation and His judgment. Let's pray. God, we humbly come before You this morning. And we know we are a sinful people. The sin that wages war in our flesh, God, we know that it is by Your power and by the Spirit that dwells within us that we might be victors and live in such a way as to know that You have conquered and crucified our flesh with its sinful desires. Help us, Lord. Help us, God, to abstain from those desires, of those passions of the flesh. Help us to conduct ourselves in an honorable manner so that the world around us will glorify and sing praises to Your name be it in the day of their salvation or in the day of judgment. God, we know no one will escape your visitation. And we pray for those around us and we pray for those listening to this sermon at some point that they might turn to you and know, God, this salvation through Jesus Christ that you have provided for each one who calls upon the name of the Lord.
I thank you again for your word. And may it go forth and bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.